Okay, Psalm 41. Uh, finished Acts this past Sunday, and I don't know if you knew it, but we'd be finishing a book of the Psalms tonight. But there's five, so. Still progress. So Psalm 41 wraps up the first book of the Psalms. Uh, I think we talked about this sometime last fall. I remember seeing the handout floating around on the piano. Um, the end of the Psalms have statements of praise to God and sort of close with a statement of Amen. And so uh, at the end of these various chapters of that wrap up these books, these collections of Psalms, those are the divisions that sort of mark them off. Next one, obviously, then would start with Psalm 42. In Psalm 41, we have this idea of someone who is in a day of trouble, uh, perhaps facing sickness, opposed by enemies, abandoned by his friends, but upheld by God's power. And so I think we see all these truths as we walk through this psalm together. And we'll talk briefly about perhaps a, a, an Old Testament illustration of this, as well as how the New Testament applies it to Christ. So let's start in verse 1. How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. And he shall be called blessed upon the earth, and do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed. In his illness you restore him to health. The first phrase, how blessed is he who considers the helpless. What do you think this um, psalm has in mind when it talks about those who are helpless? Maybe some of the kids could help me out with that question. Who are the helpless in the Bible? Okay. Yeah, so maybe slaves or people who are conquered. Who else? Who else might be helpless? Mary. Okay, sure. Okay. Okay. Uh, infants, people on either extreme of life. Yes? Yeah, widows and orphans, people who didn't have the normal uh, family structures take care of them. Sam? Okay, beggars, so people who are poor. Um, good. And so I think all of those groups, I think we pretty much covered who um, would have been in mind when David says the helpless. Um, what is God's attitude toward the helpless? Yeah, compassion. Good. What else? Yeah, so in, in one sense, God doesn't show favoritism to people simply because they're poor or weak or needy, and yet there does seem to be even though there's not favoritism, uh, it's not as though, you know, if you're at a certain income level, then you're automatically higher in God's ranking because you have less. It's not something like that. But there is a sense in which God looks at those who don't have people to take care of them and had a concern, particularly in Israel, that they would be taken care of. Um, without going into all of the pros and cons of the way that our society is structured today with regards to welfare and all those sorts of things, there is a reality that people get into difficult situations, sometimes through their own choices, often through bad decisions by other people, um, sometimes through, 
from a human perspective, tragic accidents, from, but from God's perspective, something that he anticipates. And people become orphaned, people become widowed, people become unable to meet certain basic needs. And the way that Israel was structured was that God had things in place so that people who found themselves in those circumstances would not be abandoned or without basic, basic needs being met. So what were some of the things that God did to make sure that that would take place? Maybe think about the story of Ruth. How did God set that? Okay. So, I mean, you've probably heard of like Gleaner's Food Bank, but that doesn't really help illustrate it a whole lot. What, what do you mean by that? Right. So if you go, um, if you go and you're picking fruit or gathering corn or threshing wheat, unless you're really, really, really careful, you're not going to cut down all of it, or you're not going to gather all of it. You're going to miss some of it. And God said to those who own the fields, "Don't go back and like take everything out of the field and, and completely empty it out. Leave some for those who needed basic food, so they could walk through the fields and gather." Now it's interesting there was a responsibility of those who were in need to go to the field and gather. It wasn't though they gathered it and took it to them in, in most cases, but there's also a provision where there's a recognition that what God has blessed you with is not only for you. And we've talked about that from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, this idea of stewardship. You know, God owns all of what we are. And so when we think about it, sometimes we look at the Old Testament as being like a really rigorous thing like, you give your 10%, you check the box, all is good. We talked about the number being higher, probably more like maybe 23%, plus leave some food in your fields for people who are in need, plus make sacrifices. So the reality was what the Israelites brought in, what they possessed, a lot higher percentage than we often think about was dedicated to God in some way or another, either for the support of other people or for... Um, uh, connection with sacrifices and those sorts of things. David says here, How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. Sometimes these sorts of statements make us uncomfortable because it sounds like God will be nice to you if you're nice to other people. And we're like, well, that's what everybody around us says. It's just pay it forward, karma, that sort of thing. But here's the difference. The difference is that we are talking in the context of those who are God's people and those who are God's people when they're faithfully obeying God God does bless them that doesn't and here's the tension sometimes people will say well but you know really it's not about them it's about God because God's the one that makes it possible for them to do those things which is true but the emphasis here is live rightly so that God will bless you out of his good character and you doing what you're supposed to do. In what ways would God bless? Deliver him in a day of trouble? Protect him and keep him alive? He shall be called blessed upon the earth. And do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed. In his illness you restore him to health. So in what ways would God help? God would deliver and keep him alive. There would be a recognition of his good deeds being called blessed upon the earth. He would not be uh, abandoned by God to be uh, plundered or preyed upon by his enemies. And even in the context of physical illness, there is the possibility of God restoring to help. 
think about the, uh, the the example that comes to mind when I hear something like that is the example of Hezekiah. Turn over to 2 Kings 20. Someone want to read verse 1 through 7 of 2 Kings chapter 20. Yes. So there's questions that this story doesn't answer, like exactly how he was sick and what was the significance of it. Was it something like leprosy? I mean, it doesn't go into all the specifics of it. All it says was, he was sick, he was about to die, he pleads with the Lord, the Lord heard his prayer and restored him. And the basis for God having done so, based both in Hezekiah's request where he says I have walked before you in truth with a whole heart and done what is good in your sight and how his life is described for example in chapter 18 it says he trusted in the Lord the God of Israel so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor those who were before him for he clung to the Lord he did not depart from following him but kept his commandments which the Lord had commanded Moses so there's a very clear connection in this story and in our psalm between obedience to God and God's blessing. And in connection with that, uh, we say, well, but it doesn't say anything about him being kind to the poor and helping the needy and all those sorts of things. But that was part of what was wrapped up in the law. So I think it's a reasonable assumption to say the law required you to watch out for orphans and widows and those in need. Hezekiah kept the law wholeheartedly. He was doing those things, and that was part of the reason that God extended his life. Now, this raises this question of, did God change his mind? Was God caught by surprise? People will look at passages like that and say, uh, God got caught off guard and all that sort of thing. The reality is that this, like other passages, seems to be an implied condition. Here's what's going to happen. What, were, what would be the things that would change that from happening? In this case, it was Hezekiah's prayer. In the case of the city of Nineveh, it was their repentance. There are a number of illustrations where it says God said this was going to happen and then something happened and then God did not bring about the judgment or the death or the difficulty that he had said that he would. The reason was that a condition that God had set out had been met. So God it was not caught by surprise. God was still in control of the situation. Hezekiah was spared because 
he lived a life that was pleasing to God. Turn back to Psalm 41. David says, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? And when he comes to see, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it, All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt, saying, A wicked thing is poured out upon him, that when he lies down, he will not rise up again. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Um, so, in the midst of a circumstance in which uh, there's this reality that we have to, even acknowledging that I am trying to follow God and living a life that is pleasing in His sight, I still sin. And so there needs to be a, a regular attitude and willingness to acknowledge that sin and to turn from that sin. Uh, verse 4, Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Now, I don't know that we can say for sure that the reason of the sickness was sin, but sometimes those things are wrapped up in such a way that it's hard for us to say definitively what was the cause of this specific thing. And so I think it is a wise practice for us when we face a trial to, yes, ask God for help. If we've been living faithfully for Him, that is a basis, a ground for saying, God, spare me. I'm one of your people. I love you. I'm following after you. At the same time, acknowledging that sometimes we sin and are not aware of it, and sometimes we sin and have become accustomed to it and don't see the significance of it, acknowledging sin even in the midst of a prayer for deliverance. But clearly, the majority of the blame seems to stand with the enemies of the psalmist and with friends who betray him. His enemies are plotting against him. They're speaking falsehood. They're whispering or plotting against him, devising his hurt. And the, the ironic thing is they're saying, you know what? You know, God's brought this on him and, and, and he's sort of getting what he deserves, which is the funny thing that can happen. Sometimes we can be so blind to our own wickedness that we see something bad happening to someone else and we are completely ignore the wrong things that we're doing in our lives. And we say, oh yeah, that guy's getting what he deserves. That celebrity, that politician, they got caught. What about me? What about your heart? What sin are you failing to confess to God and feeling that it is okay? Sometimes it's a simple thing like speaking truth. We say, well, I wouldn't lie. But sometimes we exaggerate, we're careless with the truth in ways that over time lead us to be more and more displeasing to God with the way that we speak, with the promises that we make, those sorts of things. Uh, case in point, somebody says, hey, can you do this? You're like, sure, I can go do that. And then somebody else says, uh, hey, here's this really fun thing that we can do instead that same day. And then we come up with an excuse to give to the first person why we can't come, help them, keep our promise, those sorts of things, making it sound like, well, we had this prior commitment when the reality was something better came along and we just wanted to do that. That's not walking in integrity. That's just one of many examples of how we can become accustomed to sin. Um, I think it's Alexander Pope who said that sin is a monster of frightful face, uh, First, we 
uh, tolerate it than we embrace. And, and it's one of those things where at first it seems really bad. And then it seems like, eh. And then it just seems like no big deal. We need to have an attitude that both acknowledges our own sin and is not blind to that sin when we see God punishing others for their sin. Verse 9 is quoted in the New Testament toward the end of John. Jesus quotes it in the context of Judas's betrayal of him. And I think this is just another of the many examples in which the life of David anticipates, pictures, points us to the life of Christ. Think about Absalom, for example. Absalom was David's son. David loved him dearly. David was heartbroken when Absalom was killed. And yet Absalom had betrayed David. He tried to throw him out of the kingdom, possibly even to kill him. Absalom rebelled against his father and, and usurped the throne for a brief period of time. When Jesus was betrayed by Judas, that same sort of betrayal. The difference being, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. David, at least at first, didn't know that Absalom was going to betray him. But in both of their lives, this was true. Someone that they shared food at the table with, someone who was as close as family, betrayed them. Maybe you've experienced this in your life. Someone that you've been close friends with suddenly turns on you, and you don't necessarily know why. You just know that relationship's not like it was before. Remember what's going on in this psalm. God knows, God sees, God is there, even in the midst of those sorts of circumstances. We see the contrast then in verse 10. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you are pleased with me, because my enemy does not shout and triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and you set me in your presence forever. And then the, the sort of conclusion, both to this psalm and probably to the whole book, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. There's this sense of retribution, not revenge, but divine justice setting things right. You're sick. Your enemies are overwhelming you. Think about the example of Hezekiah. There's this threat of the Assyrians that's a constant threat. He's the king. He needs to lead the people against the Assyrians. He can't do any of that when he's on his deathbed, right? God raises him up so that he can defeat his enemies in God's power, in God's strength, according to God's plan. And again, this is not... Sometimes we read psalms like this and we're like, oh, this is hateful and mean and we shouldn't talk that way anymore. Think about the unique position that the kings of Israel were in. They had a responsibility to lead the people, to protect the people, to carry out justice... And so it was right and proper for them to pray, restore me so that I might defeat my enemies. And as we've talked about before, there are appropriate times for us to pray that God would judge those who are wicked. Sometimes we're too quickly to jump to that point, too quick to jump to that point. We haven't, as 1 Timothy commands us, prayed for those who are government officials that God would grant them repentance so that they might be unblinded from Satan's work in their lives. But if we are praying that faithfully and there is no, God doesn't answer that prayer with a yes, then when people say that evil is good, there is a time and a place to pray, God, show them that it's wrong. God, judge them. Recognizing what Peter says as well, it's high time for judgment to begin and it will begin with the household of God. 
And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what becomes of the ungodly and the sinner? We examine our own hearts, examine our own lives, repent ourselves, recognizing God's judgment doesn't show favorites and say, okay, this person over here, they're really going to get it, but you're off the hook because you've prayed a prayer as a kid. That's not how it works. Going back to what it said in verse 4, acknowledging our sin, and verse uh, 8, not ignoring our flaws as we look at God punishing the wicked over there, away from us. Verse 11, by this I know that you are pleased with me. And what was the sign, the, the answer to David's prayer and the prayer of others who prayed these sorts of prayer in the Bible? It's when their enemies didn't defeat them. What's our vindication going to be as believers? It's what 2 Thessalonians 1 says, You who are troubled, rest with us when Jesus is revealed from heaven in flaming fire with his angels, taking vengeance on those who do not believe the gospel. He will come to be glorified in and among his saints. We will share in the glory of Christ when he returns. That will be the point at which, what verse 11 says, we know that God is pleased with us because we're on his side. We share in his glory. We see his punishment of the wicked. And Christ comes to rule and reign. Verse 12 goes back to this idea of verse 1. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and you set me in your presence forever. This is not a proud boast. This is a simple recognition. God is at work in my life. I am striving to live and please God. I am walking according to integrity. And God does not ignore that fact. And you set me in your presence forever. That's, that's the hope of eternal life. It wasn't as fully developed in the Old Testament, but it's clearly present. Another psalm where it says, In your presence is fullness of joy, your right hand is pleasure forevermore. There's a recognition that in God's presence is life and blessing and goodness, and we receive that as we walk a life that honors God. We know from many passages throughout the Bible the starting point for that life is turning away from our sin and turning to Christ. But the mark of that having happened is that we live a life that's honoring and pleasing to God. And in so doing, we receive His blessing. We have further opportunity to minister to others. We see God's justice accomplished. And we recognize that even when enemies are plotting against us or friends might betray us, God is there upholding His people. Let's go now to... Yes. Yes. 